Welcome to Behind the Standards with United Rentals. This is the podcast where we discuss construction safety, specifically trench excavation and confined space safety, but also other topics that deal with general job site safety as well. I am Rick Plosinski, Customer Training Specialist, and with me are Michael Barr, Manager of Engineered Products and Solutions, and Brett Sondergaard, District Manager for the Mid-Atlantic District. Michael, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks, Rick. So, as Rick said, my name is Michael Barr, and I've been with United Rentals going on eight years now. I've uh, been in our sales field. I've been in our engineering department doing design work, and currently now I manage our engineered products and solutions for the trench safety region. Excellent. And, Brett, what about yourself? Yeah, my name is Brett Sondergaard. I've been in the shoring industry for 20 years. As you said, I'm currently the district manager for the Mid-Atlantic uh, Trench Safety District. Um, I had, before that, I was the director of sales and marketing for United Rentals um, across the country. And prior to that, I was the vice president of Cobalt Trench Safety, uh, and that company was purchased by United Rentals. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. So the purpose of our podcast is to inform, educate, and maybe even entertain just a little bit. While we will be discussing things that might cause workplace injury and unfortunately death, we will be focusing in on things that help you eliminate the possibility of those unfortunate events. Today, we will be discussing trench safety solutions that require additional engineering where site conditions just won't allow for the use of a, quote, system in a box type of solution. Michael, let's start with you. OSHA requires protection in all excavations five feet or greater in depth. And the most common equipment used for this are trench boxes, hydraulic shores, just your basic one size fits all type of manufactured protective systems. But there are areas that require more than that, right? So what kind of site conditions are typically present where a more creative type of solution is needed? Uh, OSHA kind of classifies that there's really four different options you have when we're looking at shoring and excavation. And so the the greater part of, of our trench safety uh, kind of business unit relies around the, the appendices that are in the OSHA standard of 1926 subpart P. But when we go outside of that, uh, we can use such things as manufacturer's tabulated data, which is essentially uh, a formulation of, of requirements that have to be met for a customer to utilize specific types of trench shoring excavation materials. Uh, but when we go outside of that, uh, we have to have site-specific engineering, and that's done through a registered professional engineer. And so kind of to, to answer your question of when is that actually necessary, uh, the, the main issues that, that arise on a job site that kind of cause those those things to happen are such things as uh, surcharges. So when we're in a highly congested areas, maybe um, larger cities where infrastructure and buildings are within what we call the area of influence. And so that area of influence traditionally is within a one-to-one -one of your depth of excavation. So to give you an example, if we need to shore a hole that was 20 foot in depth, and within that 20-foot area, all the way around the edge of the excavation at the ground surface, we've got roads, we've got buildings, maybe bodies of water. Um, those are, are things that are going to present what we would call a surcharge load. And so with that loading condition, it voids what you would consider under traditional manufacturer's tabulated data, which only allows for the 72 PSF minimum surcharge limit that OSHA has set 
place. So those are a lot of the standard conditions. And then the other things that kind of can impact that would be soil conditions, obviously. So when we have uh, soil conditions that don't dictate normal use of, of a traditional means and methods of shoring, that's when we get into some of the more site-specific issues and requirements that are set forth by the um, subparts. So are there any particular types of systems, Brett, that are commonly utilized, or is it really a broad spectrum of different things? Uh, there are. Uh, when you talk about engineered systems, we're talking uh, primarily about, about two main systems. One is uh, a slide rail system. It is, um, it is a modular system. They have um, panels and rails. They go together to build different size um, um, shoring systems for, for obviously for different um, size excavations. These would be the most commonly used ones for the day in and day out general contractors doing utility work. Um, they're easily installed, they're easily removed, they're done with, with normal machines that you would find on a job site with, with essentially with, um, with excavators and wheel loaders, um, maybe a small crane, but they're not normally needed unless they get very large and have large um, pieces and parts that, that have to be uh, craned into place. Uh, the other one would be uh, the brace system, a hydraulic brace system. These would be used in conjunction with uh, what a contractor would already potentially be using um, to shore the walls of an excavation. That could be uh, beams, could be secant pile walls, could be slurry walls, and it could be just uh, regular sheet piles that contractors use uh, each and every day across uh, this country. A lot of those have to be braced. So the hydraulic bracing system kind of takes the place of, of your normal um, welded in whalers um, and, and pipe um, piles that they may use to uh, support those those different types of walls. So your two main systems would be slide rail systems and hydraulic bracing systems um, would be what kind of what we call our, our engineered solutions. And kind of to piggyback on that, the great thing about both of these types of systems that we utilize is that they're both considered what we would call positive or active shoring. And so when we look at different types of shoring and excavation equipment, you've got your active shoring, and then you've got what we would call passive shoring. And you can think of passive shoring as types of shoring equipment that are essentially there to protect the worker. Uh, hence, a, a trench box where we dig a hole and set the equipment in. And so we're, that equipment is there in the event that we have a soil uh, you know, deformation or a collapse. And so it's going to protect the worker. But when we look at active shoring and what the majority of our engineered systems would be classified in that category as, these are actually providing pressurization against the soil. And so what that does is it actually protects the, the job site around the edge of excavation. And you'll notice that a lot of review agencies in, in certain circumstances where we're dealing with active roadways or where we're in DOT right-of-ways or even in, in major metros where there are infrastructure buildings, et cetera, that are within that one-to-one -one that I mentioned earlier, uh, that's the case and that, that active shoring is going to be required because we're protecting as I said, the adjacent soil around the edge of excavation. And so that's going to prevent, uh, you know, voids and deformation of the material around it, which thus is going to protect those adjacent structures and roadways that are going to be within that area of influence as well. 
So, Brett, when you're talking about these systems, are these systems that can actually be installed by the contractor themselves, or is this something that somebody with a little bit more experience can actually or needs to be involved in the installation, or is it kind of a combination of both depending on the site conditions and the system that they're actually working with? Well, they would be installed by the contractor. Uh, it's a rental system, so you know their their contractor is the one that bid the job. They're responsible for obviously for uh, completing the job. Uh, they could certainly look at getting a sub to to actually put the shoring system in, but it's not really necessary if they've got the ability to do you know any other types of shoring systems. They should have the ability to do this as well. Uh, what we do uh, offer is a, is an installer to come out. Um, he's more of an advisor, a shoring advisor, to show you how to read the set of plans, how to how to pick them uh, in the proper way to install them safely, to make sure you know that part A goes with part B, and the sequencing that would be done to uh, properly install the shoring. So to answer your question, yes, absolutely, they they are designed to be put in by 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 the contractor, certainly. And what kind of complexities do you run into when trying to maintain and manage a fleet of specialized equipment? I mean, you can't have every single piece that everybody needs in the same spot that everybody needs it. So what are the complexities there? Well, you do definitely bring some some different uh, challenges uh, when you deal with, with engineered systems that we don't deal with with our normal shoring fleet, uh, road plates and vertical shores and uh, trench boxes. Uh, in that these things are very modular, so you've got different sizes and parts that go together to to make up a, uh, a shoring system. It's it's never just one thing, so it, it takes uh, several pieces and parts. So they're unique in, in a variety of ways, but uh, mainly they're very large. Uh, when it comes to engineering shoring systems, we're not normally talking about very small excavations. They're usually larger excavations. Um, the parts and pieces of these are, are much heavier, uh, heavier duty than, than would be found in a normal um, shoring trench box or a vertical shore, stuff made out of aluminum. This is, this is heavy duty uh, bracing stuff that's made for big holes generally. Um, so the uniqueness of that is you have to be able to handle it. Um, you wouldn't be able to just put the stuff in a normal shoring yard or normal rental equipment yard and just expect that they would have the right um, equipment to, to handle it and maintain it. So to give you an example, we've got specialized forklifts that, that pick these up, specialized cradles that go on the front of the forklift to pick these up. Uh, we have an overhead crane in our system in, in our um, in our building in Greensboro that's uh, specifically there to handle the the shoring systems that we deal with with uh, with our ground force mega brace uh, when putting them together, and on top of that, they have to be tested. There's hydraulics that have to be tested and pressure tested to the to the manufacturer's recommendations. We have to recalibrate our load pins um, that we put in there. That has to be uh, done after every single rental. That's a very uh, complicated process that has to be done. And then just the build out of the systems, they get big. Some of the uh, the lengths can reach as much as what we can get on a truck and permit. It could be 55 or 60 feet long. We try to try to put together at the shop as much as as much as we possibly can to eliminate having to actually install these and put them together and bolt them together on a job site. Because that's um, another unique thing is that they have to be torqued to a very specific torque range uh, when we do bolt these together. So. That's just uh, a few things that, that do make these uh, very specialized and, and kind of uncommon to a normal shoring fleet. And it's really just not something that you can just go into a rental yard, just grab and take it and take it out to your job site and assemble it. I mean, there's really going to be a lot of instruction on how to do this type of stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. We don't touch it until we actually have an engineered set of plans from our engineering department. I and mean, they're very, very um, um, 
detailed CAD drawings that show, you know, what parts and pieces go together. Um, no, you don't just throw it together and, and hope it works when you get out there. Yeah. yeah. And Michael, when you're trying to create some of these solutions, is it necessary to actually for you to go to these specific locations and do an inspection of the site? No, it's not necessary from an engineering standpoint. So obviously we rely for the a lot on the on the sales force for a lot of the bulk of our information. And so uh, you know our sales teams are the ones that have the the relationships with our customers who are renting this equipment. And so uh, in, in a normal circumstance, our customer would you know call up a sales rep or a member of our sales team and kind of explain out, you know this is what we're trying to accomplish. Maybe it could set up construction drawings that we can, you know, put our eyes on to kind of get a feel for what they're trying to, you know, construct within the excavation. And so it would be up to our sales rep, you know, to, to go out there and look at the site. But all of our information is going to come from our customer. And so that being the, the geotechnical information. So um, the competent person that's uh, on the job site, which has to be a trained individual, uh, would either have to give us a physical representation of, of what the soil properties are going to be for our benefit, or we have to go to a geotech report, and that's something that the owner of the job site or potentially the customer themselves would actually have to purchase and have uh, done for them. And so we can take that geotechnical information along with the construction drawings and, and documents that a customer would give us, um, and then we would simply make a recommendation based off of that information. And so. Once we get that information to them, obviously the customer would review that um, with, with our sales team and with themselves internally, uh, and then we would start the process of the physical stamping of an engineered system plan for that customer after. And so the, the geotechnical information is going to give you the majority of the loading that we're going to see on a particular site. Um, the, the, the other part of that, as I mentioned before, in, the, in regards to um, surcharge loading is going to be the other aspect of, of loading concerns that we would deal with from an engineering standpoint. But that geotechnical information is is actually a physical representation that's quantitatively analyzing the soil. And so we can take that information um, and kind of convert that over to get real-life impactable information as re with regards to the loading conditions that we're going to see, and then we can spec out an engineered design system based off of those loads that were given from that information. So let me ask you this. In the, in the past, can you give us an example of something where you had Made you have a few twists and turns. You had to kind of change your thinking from one frame of mind to another. Can you give us some examples of that? Yeah, and it, we actually run into this quite a bit with a lot of cast-in-place structures. And so what we what we tend to see is that when we look at construction drawings, uh, contractors have you know different means and methods that they're going to use to construct an actual you know, physical structure within the excavation. And so um, the, the trick that we run into is, especially on deeper excavations um, and ones where we're going to internally brace a system with hydraulics, is that we, we've got to get that sweet spot of where to place our different levels of bracing so that we're not going to interfere with the constructability um, of the actual system that, that we're installing for. And so uh, that's where we really have to get um, in tune, really, with our customers' needs and be able to identify those breakpoints, construction joints, um, where they're actually planning to do those so that we can kind of manipulate our designs, not only for the, you know, the introduction of the shoring system into the excavation, 
but much greater on the extraction. So uh, although it may have taken us three, four, five levels of bracing per se to get you know, 40, 50 foot deep into an excavation, once they start to pour their slabs and, and form and pour some walls and backfill, we can use those sequences of construction to our benefit in that we can analyze that as a, as a bracing mechanism for our excavation design. And then we can thus uh, be able to take shoring out of the hole as we're moving back up to grade, um, which is really a benefit, you know, for a, from a customer standpoint because, um, you, know, you know, it's it's equipment that's coming out of the hole. Uh, it may be going off rent just the same amount of time. Um, and then it's going to save them from having to work around shoring that's in the ground uh, for the for the means of their construction. So is that, and not to put you too much on the spot, is that kind of like what you had to do as far as the Charlotte Airport project? Because I know that there was a very large project going on at Charlotte Airport that involved multiple layers of shoring and bracing. Would that be a good example of, of what you're talking about there? Yeah, that'd be a fantastic example. And, and the job that you're mentioning was it was for a underground pedestrian tunnel at the Charlotte Douglas Airport. And so what they the customer had to essentially divert traffic um, from the, the normal routes that you would take to get to the terminals of the airport. And they had to create a pretty large open excavation utilizing sheet piles and hydraulic bracing. And the, the issue that we ran into, obviously, as I've harped on multiple times during this podcast, is that we've got to deal with surcharge loading. And so, you know, we've got uh, existing structures in the terminal, we've got pedestrians, we've got vehicular traffic, we've got parking decks. And so um, we, it took us multiple levels of bracing to be able to get down to the final excavation depth. Um, but then they were able to pour slab. We're able to utilize that slab as a bracing point and then give them the vertical clearance that they needed to actually construct the pedestrian tunnel. And then the great part about it was is that we were able to build an additional shoring system at the end um, of the initial pit. And that gave the customer the ability to then take that shoring system out, flip it to the other side so that they could build the other half of the tunnel and then connect all that together in one fluid movement of not only rental equipment, but manpower and um, their actual construction materials. So. How deep was that overall tunnel? That tunnel was, if I recall, roughly about 25 to 30 feet below ground. Um, Brett, you may have a little bit more knowledge on that. I think that was about the depth, though. That sounds about right. I was there, and it, that looked about, about correct. Brett, what kind of creative solutions have you had to deal with lately? Well, it's, it's funny, yes. They're, uh, they're, they're all kind of creative um, solutions when it comes to engineered systems. When the phone rings and you pick it up and you start to engage with a, with a customer, it's, uh, you, know, you never know where it's going to take you. So it's, it's, they're all kind of outside the box. They're different in the, uh, in the areas that they're located, soil conditions. In, in my particular district, we have everything from the mountains to the, to, the, uh, to the coast. So something that's located in Wilmington, North Carolina, or in Norfolk, which is a solution there, is not going to be the same solution as one that is in, uh, particularly in the mountains or, or even in Charlotte, where the soil conditions might be you know, harder and rock and more clay. Um, but we've got some, some big stuff going on. We've got a, um, a, a job in, the, um, in Chesapeake Bay, uh, tunnel project that that is a uh, launch pit for for the bore that's going to go under the Chesapeake Bay. It's done by a consortium of contractors from all over the world. They're going to be working on this on this particular project. 
and we're doing the shoring um, for for that for that particular uh, excavation. Um, it's very very interesting um, when you start to engage with them the different ways that they're going to construct the project. It's actually slurry walls that have been um, in basically uh, dug out of the soil on a, on a uh, terminal island that's that's currently out in the middle of the Chesapeake um, Bay. Been working on it for over a year just to get the walls uh, in the ground. Uh, they're called slurry walls, where they clam shell out these um, these excavations, rebar cage in the ground, and then pour the uh, pour the concrete there uh, in place. Um, so you can imagine now under the ground in a huge um, rectangular excavation. Once they start to excavate inside of those walls, they have to be braced, and that's where we came in. We were able to show them a, a hydraulic solution that, that met their needs, and they're excited about it, and that should be going in the ground in the next, hopefully, 90 to 120 days. Yeah, yeah, and, and kind of to Brett's point, it's, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with different, different, you know, circumstances every time the phone rings, and, you know, we've, as I mentioned, this kind of phasing of, of engineered design when we look at these solutions, but... You know, that goes for, for anything, really, from a 10 to 12-foot deep excavation to excavations that we've got in the ground now in some major metros. Uh, we've got one that's over 100 feet deep currently. It's uh, about the perimeter size of a basketball floor. And, you know, like I said, we're over 100 feet down into the ground. So you can imagine some of the, you know, constructability issues that we run into in dealing with our customers. But, you know, at that point, you know, we're getting down into really rocky conditions where we may be having to, you know, not only, you know, internally brace with hydraulics, but we're, we're doing such things as rock anchoring. And so um, it, it gives us the ability to, to utilize different types of, of, of engineering design um, that are going to mesh well together and ultimately give the customer what they need in that, you know, a good, clean, safe, and economical way to, to shore a hole for the purposes of, you know, expediting their their time frames and timelines for getting this stuff built and in the ground so uh, quite a bit of uh, variation between not only regions but you know geographically as well when we look at these types of systems excellent so let me ask you guys the final question michael what kind of information would you want the general public to know about site-specific trench safety solutions that they usually don't I guess one of the biggest things is that there's really no one-size-one-size approach when we're looking at site-specific engineering, and I mean that in a variety of ways, and one of those would be that, you know, we do a lot of commingling of equipment, and so we can also design shoring systems where we may be using a slide rail system in unison with trench boxes and in unison with hydraulic, um, you know, hydraulic struts as well. So. Uh, you know, there's not one simple approach and say, you know, this is the way that we have to do it. And so that kind of feeds back to all the other considerations that we have to take into account, whether that be, you know, the soils and what condition they're in, uh, the surcharges that are going to be in that vicinity or that area of the job site and the excavation, and then what type of equipment the, the customer may be familiar or comfortable with, um, as well as what they're actually going to be doing. So. All of those factors are going to influence not only the way we would design a system, but also, you know, the, the way that we would look at that particular solution with the customer. And so um, the, the biggest thing that I would say I want the general public to know is that, um, you know, it's, it's 
not only a consulting thing with us in that, you know, we've got a lot of experience doing this, but we also uh, like to, you know, work with our customers to make sure that what we're going to do is, is feasible and it's going to be something that they're going to be comfortable with and in hopes that, you know, we can provide them all the necessary tools, equipment, and uh, customer support that they would need to be able to um, complete that task. Brett, what about you? I would say that, that what I would want them to know is that there are, there are just there are new options uh, for showings that are available um, that just weren't there, say, 10 or, or um, there's 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 options out there that the contractors just have not seen before. They haven't they haven't um, even conceived of them in some cases. So it's uh, very rewarding when they call us and they've got a challenging job and we're able to go out there and show them. Uh, a better way to do it that, that quite frankly saves them time and saves them money and, and I would like to think even makes for a safer job site than what they maybe would have done the, the conventional way with welding or or cutting inside the hole and placing pacing steel um, in, in different types of situations. Uh, so I think it's really worth it to engage with us on on um, on your projects to uh, to see what what new options might actually be out there that could save you again time and money. This has been Behind the Standards with United Rentals. If you have any questions about this topic or have any suggestions about other topics that you may want to be discussed, feel free to send us an email at urtspodcast at ur.com. On behalf of Brett, Michael, and myself, thanks for listening. Have a great day and stay safe.